So earlier this year when we were planning out what we would be teaching, we knew that we needed to come to the book of Titus. I knew that it would be a very important time to lay a foundation for our transition. We didn't know exactly when we would start it and how it would unfold, but the reason that this is so important is because the book of Titus, very short, I don't know you have it open there. I don't know if you're looking at it electronically, but, but if you look at the book of Titus, I mean, that, that's it. Just, just a couple of pages here on the Bible I'm holding. And even though it's short, it speaks so concisely of how a healthy church family has healthy church leaders. Do you remember what Paul wrote at the beginning? He said, this is why I left you in Crete. If you've you know, I always think as a pastor, when you're studying a book, when you finish it, does anybody remember anything? You know, and, and so we've been doing this for weeks, but when you come to Titus in the future, will you have any idea what's going on? Crete, an island, uh, churches were springing up across the island, and Paul asked Titus to stay there and see that they were prepared to move forward in the future. And he says, this is what you need to do. You need to make sure that there are elders in every town, a plurality of leaders. And you know, when we studied this, we looked at the requirements of what it means that there's not just one pastor, but there are people with the pastor. And a healthy church has that plurality, has a, a group of leaders that work alongside and work with the pastor to give leadership. And this, it's really important for us to see why us as a Shallowford family need to have a view for that plurality for multiple leaders and not just one. First, it's, it's really important to me personally that you see there's a history to Shallowford. And I'm sure if anyone's lived in the area a long time, they've been interested as the signs changed out front. Because on this piece of property, since... I think it was around 1990 when the transition was taking place of planting a church. On this piece of property, there have been multiple congregations. But when there's been a transition from one pastor to the next, or when a pastor left, the church just kind of fell apart. What do we do? I mean, how do we function? And part of the problem with that is there was only one leader. And when that leader left, there were no other leaders ready to bring the church together and to talk about the future and make sure they can make a transition. The last time that happened, when this church had a pastor leave, they, they had to say, maybe we're going to have to close down. What are we going to have to do? And it was at that time that First Baptist Church Woodstock stepped in and made us a campus and started over in a sense. And it was under that leadership five years ago that I was asked to come. And I said, well, I have a full-time job, but can Johnny come with me? And let Johnny be the, the paid pastor on staff and let me work alongside as we prepared for a future. We didn't know that the campus would move away from being a campus model to being an autonomous local church. We didn't know that five years ago when we started. But we knew that there needed to be a healthy congregation here in this building that God had used his people to build and that we needed to be able to continue. That's why we needed to have more than one leader in place. So when it came time for us to uh, become a church family and be autonomous, I personally knew that my time was limited. You say, what do you mean? Well, 
first of all, I'm old. I know that, okay? But we also know why we came to Atlanta. When, when KK and I moved to North Atlanta to, for me to be on staff of the North American Mission Board, the driving force was that her parents were in a, a terrible need and we knew that God was moving us to come down so we could take care of them. And I often told the president of the North American Mission Board, when you hear that my father-in-law dies, you know I'm going to come see you because I, I've, God's got something in my heart that I feel like we ought to do, and it's not be on staff here. And I'll never forget the day I walked in and told him, so, so Kevin, it's time for me to make a transition. He said, wait a minute, you told me you had at least five more years. I said, no, 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 no. I told you when my father-in-law died, I was going to make a transition, and he just keeps living, and I'm not going to pray for him to die, okay? <laughs> but, but, but I know that the clock is running, the clock is ticking on my life, and that's when we started our new ministry to missionaries, and God allowed us to continue to stay here to serve with you. And then almost a year ago, we were just a few weeks away from the time that Big D went to heaven. And it was in that particular transition that we knew two of our children, uh, 11 of our 13 grandchildren live in North Carolina where I pastored. And so it's just a matter of time before God's going to be able to help us go back while we're still young enough to move, to help us go back and love on those kids and grandkids and continue our missionary ministry from there. So this is an important passage. This is an important book for us to see that God wants to have a group of leaders so the work can continue. Because Titus, he wasn't going to be there. He was just left there to put it in order so that then the church leadership might be able to continue even when Titus was gone. As a matter of fact, even in this letter, we're going to see, he's going to say, it's not going to be long, Titus. You're going to be able to leave and come back and help me in another way. That's next week's concluding sermon, all right? So here today, what do we see in these verses as we start to look at what it means for there to be a group of leaders providing leadership to a healthy church? Well, Part of what we need to see at the beginning and the end of this book, he said healthy leaders must deal with problems, controversy, and division. You know, I, I wish there were a way that we could turn off the streaming and, and have nobody in here but our church family because I hate to talk about problems. Because when people on the outside look at churches, they think that it's all a sham and there's all a show and there's always problems. But you know, anytime you have a family, you're going to have some problems. Anytime you have a large family, you're going to have some problems. I remember being in Kenya, and I, I told you this story. They were trying to figure out how big the church was, our pastor. And I knew those pastors I was training couldn't relate to the size of our church because their churches would have all fit in the choir loft. I mean, it was, you know, it was just an a, a odd thing for them, and I wouldn't tell them how big the church was. But one day, one of the volunteers told them how big the church was, and at that time, the church I was pastoring had... I don't know, 1,500, 1,700 people in worship. And those people couldn't get their minds around the fact that there was a church that big. So they started whispering, and I said, what are you guys talking about? They said, we know how big your church is. I said, who told you? They said, one of the volunteers told us, and we know. I said, well, think about this. If you have people, you have problems. If you have a lot of people, what do you have? A lot of problems. You know, it's so good for me to be able to preach this text today at Shalford. We don't have any problems. 
I mean, I'm so glad that I'm not having to go, I'm not going to look over here because that's a problem person over there. <laughs> you know, I mean, I can look at any of you today and I can be excited about the fact that you're longing to walk with Jesus and you want us to do this together. But when Paul wrote Titus, there were problems. I want you to see, he even opened up talking about the problems. In chapter 1, when he said you're going to be looking to put elders together, look what he said. An elder must be somebody who can hold firm to the trustworthy word that was taught, that he may be able to give sound instruction, sound doctrine, and he may be able to, that's pretty harsh, rebuke those who contradict. Because there were some that were trying to divide that congregation or those congregations on the Isle of Crete. And the leaders had to figure out how to take the right stand. Hopefully you spend most of your time focusing on what's good. But when you focus on what's good, sometimes you'll expose what's not. Look at what he said in verse 11 of chapter 1. He said they must be silenced. Man, that's pretty strong work. You're going to get the mafia to go take them out? I mean, you know, silent. No, that's not it. But they must learn that they can't upset families, teaching, trying to get things for themselves, stuff that they ought not teach. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. A lot of you, like me, I don't like conflict. I really don't like conflict. But... If you're going to be a leader, you need to know that what goes with the territory. There are going to be times that things are sown in the field that aren't the pure crop. And the weeds have to be dealt with so that it will not choke out the healthy things. So as he talked to them about healthy church family with healthy church leaders... He said, this is so important because if you don't deal with what's wrong, it's going to be like a cancer. In that little journal we gave you, First and Second Timothy, Titus, those are called the pastoral epistles for a reason. They were pastors, and if you'll go back and read some of the things he said to Timothy, I remember plenty of lonely times as a young pastor when I didn't have anybody to talk to. I'd just go read those pastoral epistles and say, okay, Paul, you talk to me. I'm a young pastor here. What do I do? And as he did, he said, there's going to be things, if you don't deal with it, it's going to be like gangrene. It's going to be like cancer. It's going to be moving through, and it's going to undercut what's happening in the church. So as he saw this, Writing in the letter early, now we come to chapter 3, and he's, he's trying to wrap up the letter, but he comes right back to this idea that healthy church leaders are going to have to confront problems. And look at what he says, verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these things. So that those who have believed in God, I love that phrase, uh, those who have believed, those who have found in Jesus the way for their life to be transformed, those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Haven't you seen it all throughout the book? Healthy believing is going to result in healthy living. It's very important to your theology to know where works fit in. It's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not as a result of your works, 
so that no one would boast. We don't work to be saved, and we don't work to stay saved. But because we are saved, we work. Because Christ is in us, He works through us. That's why the scripture would say, For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do, for His good pleasure. And notice what He says to Titus. He says, These good works that grow out of a faithful heart are profitable. It's a good thing. It bears good results. But if you're a Bible student that likes to look at similarities and contrast, you're going to notice he says it's profitable. Then he turns right back around and says, this is what's unprofitable. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and they are worthless. Controversy can get you so sidetracked. Sometimes do you find yourself, you're scrolling through Facebook and you're learning to, you know, you love to see some pictures of your friends and your family and some of the cool things going on. And then all of a sudden it seems like everything you're reading is talking about a problem and what's wrong. And you find yourself, I just need to turn this thing off. I mean, there are times you start to watch the news and you think, how many more people were killed in greater Atlanta today? I mean, when you focus totally on what's wrong, does that mean you shouldn't confront or No, we're going to get to that. But you need to know that there are times you just need to avoid because that stuff will eat you up if you focus on it. Avoid foolish controversy. First, avoid it. Don't get sucked in. Never fight the devil on the devil's terms. Some of you know that my full-time ministry, I feel so weird sitting saying that to you when I'm here ministering to you, but really, my full-time ministry has been and is right now serving missionaries and trying to keep them encouraged as they're out on the front lines with nobody else to help them. And I don't announce the fact that I help pastors, but I do, because there's so many pastors that need help, I knew that I could do that full-time and never get to the missionaries who have no one. But let me tell you about a pastor that I was talking with recently. He, he needed somebody to talk to. He's a pastor in Hawaii. He's a young man. He jokingly said, I really am on an island by myself. And as I started talking to him, he started telling me of the controversy going on in his church. He's a young pastor. Never had a problem before, ever. And he's all alone. And what he's doing is kind of like what Shalford was and what we're trying not to be. He's the only leader in the church. And there's nobody there to help him. And I talked him through how that these problems would consume him how he needed to find some other leaders to help him. And as we started to end, I said, okay, so tell me, list your problems for me one more time, and then we're going to pray. He said, I guess my first problem is I'm not sure if this problem's real or not. I said, what do you mean? He said, I keep listening to these stirrings that all of these people are upset and all of these people are against me. And I said, brother, that's just not true. 
you need to know that that's the evil one trying to cut your legs out from under you. Part of what Titus was told and part of what these leaders were told, just avoid that foolish controversy. It's unprofitable. But if you can't avoid it, what else can you do? You can identify what's going on, what's causing the division. There are people who stir up division. Do you have anybody like that in your life? Their problem is their life. But do you have anybody in your life where their problem is their life and they want to make their problem your problem all the time? I mean, you feel like if I'm going to be Christ-like, surely I'm going to help. But at some point, can you help? Do they want help? Well, we're going to get to that in a second. All right, but look at this. Look at what it says. It says, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. I think it's the, the New American Standard that says, reject the factious man after the first or second warning. I was talking to Bob in the kitchen before the service this morning, and I was talking to him about what I was getting ready to preach. And I told him, I said, it's so different from the last time I remember preaching this in a congregation. It was well over 20 years ago. I was pastoring a church in Virginia, and guess what? We were presenting new bylaws. And as we were presenting those new bylaws, one of the leaders that had been a former leader and nobody wanted him to lead anymore stood up and started making amendments. I said, wait, 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 wait. That's not how we're going to do this. So if you have an amendment, put it in writing. We're just going to postpone 30 more days, and then we'll come back. Everybody will know what we're voting on, and it'll all be clear. 23 amendments offered by former deacons who weren't going to be deacons again because everybody had seen their attitude. So we saw those 23 amendments, and I said, oh, my, what are we going to do? I said, well, I told the chairman of the deacon, I said, call those former deacons to the deacons meeting. Let them all sit in there together. We didn't have elders. The, de the deacons were functioning like elders. Call them in there and Here's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to let you guys talk it out. So I stood up and I prayed. And I said, I'm going to pray that you guys can find some good answers tonight. I'm not going to be accused of controlling the conversation. So let me pray and I'm going to leave. <laughs> and I prayed and I walked out of the meeting. And I said, okay, Lord. Totally up to you. However you want to do this. The deacons voted 23 times to reject their amendments. And then they said, we still want them to go to the church floor. So we came to the church business meeting. And 23 times, the chairman of the deacon stood up and said, we as deacons voted to reject this amendment, and we encourage you to reject it. Sat down, the congregation, 23 times voted no. And those troublemakers, divisive people, left the church. That didn't make me happy. But knowing that the division had been dealt with the right way in love and in kindness, but I was preaching through the book of Titus. And the next week, I stood up 
and said, open your Bibles to the next passage that we're, we're studying. And I had to preach this text. In the New American Standard, reject the factious man after the first or second warning. I did it with a broken heart. I did it not gloating. But the congregation, at least those in leadership, knew that we had painfully done the right thing. To say to those stirring up division, we're not going to do that. What do you do when you are faced with that kind of divisiveness and that kind of struggle? In your life, what do churches do? Look at the next verse. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. I don't suggest that you go up and say, you know, you're warped. You know, I don't, I don't suggest that the action you take. But the scripture's trying to say something to you about how you can recognize divisive leaders and how you can respond to division in your own life. So quickly, let's make a list. How do you recognize people who are divisive? How do you recognize troublemakers who are trying to destroy the church? First, we're going to do this for church leaders, and then we're going to apply it back to you individually. Here's the first test. Test it by the gospel. We use the word gospel a lot around here. I want to make sure you don't miss it. That you don't miss what we mean when we say gospel. The gospel really is the good news. But you hear a lot of people that that's the gospel truth. And, you know, you, you talk about things happening in culture and people will say, well, that's just the gospel. Well, what do we mean when we say that's the gospel? We mean that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We mean that we were all sinners and could not save ourselves. We mean that Jesus came to live the perfect life. And when he died, he took his sin upon, our sin upon himself. And when he was raised, he was raised to give us new life. The essential nature of the gospel is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died according to the scripture and he was raised according to the scripture. And so we know that that's the faithful word we hold to. Back in chapter 1 it said elders must hold firm to this trustworthy word so that they can give instruction in sound doctrine. Healthy teaching always points to the cross. Johnny said it last week. If you come and you hear a message and we don't get around to talking about Jesus, then we messed up. Because the whole point of the message is to show us how much God loves us, how sinful we are and couldn't save ourselves, and how Jesus came to be our Savior. That's the whole point. That's the point of the Christian life. That's the point of the church gathered to celebrate. Why do we do this on Sunday? Why don't we do this on the real Sabbath, the Saturday? Because Jesus was raised on the first day of the week. And the entire reason that believers have worshipped for 2,000 years on a Sunday is because they're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And those who need to hold fast to that and rebuke those who don't pass the gospel test. Think about the gospel for a moment. In Galatians, in the book of Galatians, he starts off and says, I'm amazed that you're preaching another gospel. And there really isn't another gospel. There's only one. But the Galatians were adding works to the gospel. And, and here's an interesting point about Titus and Galatians. You go back and read the book, of Titus, the book of Galatians, and you see that Titus 
is referred to. Paul says he took Titus with him to Jerusalem when he was trying to establish that he would preach the gospel to Gentiles. And Titus was a Gentile. And Paul says, when we went to Jerusalem and we, we told them we were preaching this gospel to Gentiles, they didn't ask Titus to become a Jew. They didn't ask him to be circumcised and submit to the law. But instead, they said, just cling to the cross of Jesus and do what you're supposed to do as a person who's been saved by Christ. Conflict was not new to Titus. He hung out with Paul. <laughs> and everywhere Paul went, there was conflict. And Titus had seen it, and he knew he had to be able to work through it. So divisive people, this is in the church, they're not talking about the gospel. Instead, they're talking about do it my way. And there's a fruit test. What is the result of their life? This whole idea of a divisive person is a word that means they are a law unto themselves. They're making up the rules as they go. I have an ongoing joke with KK because she tells me about being the youngest cousin growing up with all these cousins around her. And she grew up hating Monopoly. Because they would always get her to play Monopoly and never tell her the rules. And she said, I'd sit there and before I knew it, they were taking my money and they were taking my houses and they were taking my hotels and taking my property. And nobody ever told me how to keep them or what to do about it. And so we kind of have this on Joe and Joe. Honey, that's kind of like playing Monopoly, you know. But there's a fruit test to divisive people. The only rule you can figure out that they're playing about playing for is they are the center of attention they are we are told in titus chapter 3 verse 2 don't speak evil don't avoid quarreling be gentle show perfect courtesy to all people but that's not at all what these people are doing instead they're speaking evil they're stirring up quarrels they're never gentle and they are not showing i, I love this it says here perfect courtesy but a good translation, according to Danny Aiken at Southeastern Seminary, is it's a sweet reasonableness. Think about it. You know people when you talk to them, they want to figure out a good solution. And you know people when you talk to them, all they want to do is be rude and demand their own way. Gospel test, a fruit test, a humility test. You see, humility is the very opposite of an argumentative spirit. Let's look again at verse 10. It says, as for a person who stirs up division. In the original, there's such a pact of self-centeredness. Think about it. Don't call anybody's name and don't whisper it to the person sitting beside you, all right? But who do you know? It just seems that the aroma of their life is that they're factious. They're divisive. They're self-centered, arguing, demanding their own way. And we have to realize that that person, there's something else going on. There's something else going on in their life. And most of the time, it's hidden way down in their heart, and you can't fix it. Here's the last test. 
for church leaders when they're discovering divisiveness in a church. What's the gospel test? What's the fruit test? What's the humility test? What's the unity test? You can recognize a divisive person because they're always breeding division, trying to get people to fight and follow them. They don't want to discover the truth. So let's apply this to church leaders and then to you. Church leaders need to diligently teach what is right and if necessary, gently correct what is wrong. I remember hearing this. I did a fact check on it. I still hope it's true. <laughs> but it made so much sense when I first heard it. When you're training, what would that be? Secret service. Who, who is it that works to try to catch people with counterfeit bills? Anyway, and the government, when they're training people to spot counterfeits, you know what they do? They just teach them how to recognize what's real. And a counterfeit shows up that it's not real. That's really where leaders are supposed to focus. If you get up and there's a guy always shouting and fussing and stomping his feet and trying to demand everybody do everything his way and he's just, you know, he acts like he preaches like he's mad, you know. It's like the kid going home from church said, who's that guy mad at, you know. I mean, if a preacher's always like that, I'm telling you, he's focusing on the wrong stuff. Because when we open our Bibles, we're supposed to be running to the cross and diligently teaching what is right. But when we do that, the wrong will raise its head and be exposed. And leaders have to gently correct what is wrong. Avoiding foolish controversy, not get into some... It doesn't mean you can't clarify, but it means you're not going to fight over things that you just aren't going to fight about. Because you warn, even reject those who are trying to pick a fight. And sadly, sometimes you have to let them walk away. Right about now, some of you may be thinking, so are you saying my way or the highway? No. No, I'm saying in a quarrel, in a fight, what a great time to talk about it at Shallowford because we're not. There may come a time when you have to deal with it. Hey, by the way, you don't know this, but we've had, in the last five years, we've had at least two very clear examples of this text. One guy I told you about, he was sitting right over here, and I noticed during the time of welcome and all this kind of stuff, he was trying to get everybody to follow him in his Pentecostal theology. And when the service was over, I circled back around and sat down and said, tell me your story. And we started talking. And finally, I said, he said, I'll be glad to meet with you and see if I can teach you. I said, I don't need to meet with you. I mean, I mean, no offense, but I've spent most of my life trying to clarify these things in the scripture. And you're wrong. And if you're coming to Shalford to see if you can try to teach everybody else how they're inferior unless they speak in tongues and unless they do certain things like you're teaching... You're just not welcome here. Matthew remembers it well. He, he was out in the hall. He was, he was trying to see if he's going to have to come in and protect me because <laughs> there was such an argument going on right over here. And I hope you know that a loving shepherd said to him, you're not welcome to do that here. That's not who we are. That's not where we're going. But the last time I remember, at least 
giving that illustration and telling you publicly about that conflict, there was another guy, and he, no offense, but he was sitting right over here. <laughs> and, and he was coming most every week. And the week when I said that we're going to take a stand and not let false doctrine control or make us fight all the time as a church, in my heart I knew that God was working in that guy sitting right over here. And he's never been back. Emory had confronted him in a home Bible study. Lynn had confronted him, these two men that were asking to be elders with us. They had had to deal with that kind of conflict. That's part of what let me know that these men were godly enough to come and stand with a pastor and help us stay healthy as a church. I'm not celebrating that, folks. I long for restoration. But if you've got a disease in your life, you want to go to a surgeon and get it cut out. And as a congregation, for us to be healthy and flourish, we have to be willing to say that teaching, that spirit, that attitude is just not welcome here. So, remember, I didn't write this book. <laughs> it's like the guy said. I didn't write the paper. I'm just a paper boy. All right, I'm just bringing it to you. I didn't write this. I'm just trying to help you see. That's why this is in our Bible. But what about you? You say, I'm not a church leader. I'm glad the church leaders hope they read this, hope they do that right. What about you? Is there any application at all for you in this text? Since you don't plan to be doing this in the church leadership chair. Well, here's some questions to ask about your spheres of influence. The next time you find yourself in the middle of controversy, in the middle of a problem, ask yourself, am I gossiping? Do you know how to define gossip? Gossip is when you are talking to someone who's not part of the problem or not part of the solution. You can write that down, carry it to the bank, you can remember it for the rest of your life. It's not an original, but I don't know where it came from, but I've told it enough that I still think it's mine, all right? If I'm talking to somebody that's not part of the problem or they're not part of the solution, I need to keep my mouth shut. I don't need to keep stirring up strife. Hey, did you, did you hear what she said? Did you hear about what he's doing? That's gossip. And followers of Christ don't do that. All right? Here's the second question to ask yourself. Do I have a clear conscience? When you're in conflict with someone, have you tried to make it right? Remember what Jesus said? When you come and you worship, leave your gift there and go and try to make it right with your brother? Even if you didn't cause it. Have you tried to make it right? In those two instances I told you about this morning, it didn't start with you're not welcome here. It started with us trying to figure out ways to make it right. And once you've tried to make it right, have you turned it over to God? Why do I say that? Anybody got a child not walking with God? Anybody have a spouse not walking with God? 
Anybody have a friend not walking with God? You know, when you're trying to correct a little child, you just think, man, if I could just find a way to open up that screw and go in there and see where those wires are disconnected, and I could get in there and fix it, I, I could straighten this kid out. But you can't. He's not a machine. And the same is true with people that you love in the midst of conflict. You can't fix it. But you can come to the place that you're not part of the problem when you're turning them over to God to say, God, can I lay them in your hands? I really want to be restored. I really don't want the conflict to continue. I really want there to be a healthy walk with God. Ask yourself these questions when you're in conflict. Are you gossiping? Have you tried to make it right? Are you willing to turn it over to God? And are you praying that they really will be restored? You can't make anyone change. But there are things you can do to hinder change. A soft answer turns away wrath. Don't argue with a fool in his folly. Go read the book of Proverbs. You rescue a fool in his folly and you'll just have to do it again because he's going to go right back there. All the frustration that comes when you realize you can't make anyone change. But there are things you can do to hinder change. You can keep the fight going. You know, it frustrates people so much when you won't fight back. I mean, it freaks them out. Come on, I'm trying to fight with you. Won't you fight? No, that's not going to bring a good solution. What can you do to help make it possible? You can humble yourself. And if necessary, give them space, turn them over to God, and watch Him bring about change. But where are you today? Did you listen to this, wanting to make sure we have a healthy church in the years to come? Or you couldn't get there because there's so much going on in your own life with people you're in conflict with. All you could think about was that. Well, either way, hey, we can pray together right now. So let's pray. So, Father, this is a hard text as it talks about resolving conflict. And Lord, I'm sure that there are plenty today who are living right in the middle of conflict in their own lives. I pray that you'd help them search their hearts to see if there's anything they need to do. I pray you'd help them to search their lives to see if there's any way they can be a part of the solution. Lord, I thank you that we as a church are not in the middle of conflict as we look at this, essentially, a church discipline text. And Lord, I do pray for the years to come. I celebrate so that you've raised up men to walk together. That you've surrounded our church family with godly leaders. And that you've given us a chance to peek over the horizon into the future and know that you've got a great plan for this Shalford family. So, Lord, make our lives about the gospel.
make our lives lives that bring about good fruit. Lord, let it be said of us that we're people who are humbly serving King Jesus. And may our unity be so evident that people want to know Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Would you look this way? Jesus said, by the way you love each other, by your unity, people are going to know that I came. May that be said about us. That there's such an incredible love that we share. When people walk in the room, they'll say, I've never seen people that love each other like that. Amen? Let's stand and let this final song be like rain soaking into our heart so the seed can grow and bear fruit. Make this your prayer.